0: From Troy Public Radio, Troy University, and the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama, this is It Came From the Archives. I'm Greg Phillips. Each episode, we delve into the archives to bring you a topic, introduce you to someone new, or tell you a story about the Wiregrass region and the surrounding area. Our guide is Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives at Troy University. When soldiers fight away from home, They leave behind non-combatants, mothers, fathers, siblings, and friends. For extended periods, these soldiers' only ties to the home they left behind are the letters they receive from loved ones. Today's show is inspired by the letters of Irene Pierce, who lived in Tallassee near Montgomery. Pierce was a young woman during World War I and a regular correspondent with several soldiers, including her future husband, John Godwin. These letters tell a story of love, war, and heartbreak and the man who has read them and even cataloged them is archivist and historian
1: Dr. Marty Olaf. Irene Pierce, uh, she was 22 in 1917, and she worked at the Tallassee Cotton Mill. That was the big employer in the state. She had worked there since 1907 after she had graduated from 8th grade, which was as far as the Tallassee school system provided education. During World War One, Irene Like most women in Tallahassee, Alabama, small town, participated with Red Cross things, projects uh, with the Red Cross, a lot of sock knitting and rolling of bandages. That was a big deal. We didn't have a big industrial complex to provide war material. And so people provided war material by doing things like cutting and rolling bandages. We had an organization called the Four Minute Men and the Four Minute Women who would make four-minute speeches anywhere they could. Lots of times in movie theaters, this was a national group. They spoke on national topics. It was uh, put out by the Committee on Public Information out of Washington, D.C., which was a wartime agency. They had 51 sanctioned discussions, and they asked for things like fur coats so our troops wouldn't freeze on the line. They asked for things like binoculars because we couldn't manufacture binoculars quickly enough. So I have this, to to really get off point here, I have this fantasy, this fantasy vision of some mud-covered doughboy sticking his head up over the edge of a trench trying to sight the enemy and holding up some lady's opera glasses. (laughs) Um, uh, Not big field binoculars, but opera glasses on a little... uh, (laughs) Uh, on a little handle. I I hope that that's true. I don't know if it is. Anyway, Irene Pierce uh, worked with the Red Cross uh, providing these kinds of materials to the people online, and she participated in a U.S. version of what the French called the Marions de Guerre, which was a pen pal service that was, uh, after 1914, for French soldiers by French women and girls. This was expanded in 1917 to all of the armies, and some of her collection, I think, is from that. Now, she corresponded with people like her brother. She corresponded with a guy named Loman Ballard, who married her sister when when he came back, but she also corresponded with a couple of other guys, one of which is John Godwin, who she then married. But another of which, and this is, the, this is the most interesting thing. This is the spicy part. This is the spicy one, yeah. She corresponded with a fella from Pennsylvania named Chester Shrum. There are four letters that she received from Chester Shrum. He was in the 82nd Infantry Division. He was training in Fort Gordon, Georgia, and he was from central Pennsylvania. So he was way out of his element. And, you know, soldier, lonely, young man, looking for love. It's the 19-teens
0: version of a dating app in some way.
1: Actually, it, yeah, very much is. Very much is. Um, his first letter to her, and of course, like I said, we only have his side of the correspondence here. His first letter is just a, an introduction, kind of a thank you for writing, you know, thanks for being part of this pen pal program, and here's who I am, and I'd love to know more about you. And then his second letter starts, she she gave a little bit, and his second letter is, is much more flirty. And at one point, he talks about a letter that she wrote in which she apparently said something about wanting to get a handful of the Kaiser's heart you know, the, the Kaiser of Germany, who was by this time blamed for starting World War I. And he, he said, well, gosh, I'm really surprised you're so bellicose, but I totally agree with it. <laughs> In fact, Chester said, I want to get hold of that mustache first and find out if he has a heart. <laughs> and, and then by the third letter, he's really bold by the third letter, very familiar. He, he talks about exchanging photographs. He suggests that any typos and any mistakes that he made in the letter, she should consider hugs. It's she, amazing that time, times don't really change. They don't change at all. And kids, and I was just this bad, always think they've discovered the opposite sex or the same sex. They haven't. <laughs> your parents, your grandparents, we all did this <laughs> in, in one form or another. But this third letter, he's going for it. And then she doesn't respond. Oh man, She ghosted him. She obviously was no longer interested.
0: And he he was hurt. You have a line in this article, by the way, that just killed me when uh, you said uh, Shrum was obviously enamored of her. But how did she feel? It's telling that he didn't hear from her again. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Never apparently heard from her again. And he wrote at the end of that of that letter. He, he wrote that he was hurt and he, he wrote, losing your correspondence seems more like losing an old companion. Oh, just heartbreaking. So, poor Chester. He ends up being deployed. He becomes a corporal. He's in the trenches. He gets captured. And he's a POW for four months. And then he be, and then he's exchanged. And when he is coming back on a troop transport, we don't know who all he announced his return to, but he sent a postcard to Irene Pierce, telling her that he was coming back. And, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Oh,
0: it really is. Now I feel bad for the guy. Yeah, really. <laughs> wow.
1: But she had another. She had another suitor. At the she part. did. She was corresponding by that time with the man she ended up marrying, J.R. Godwin. Godwin's a pretty interesting character and really it's the the reason I got this material is because of his relatives interest in him and the family lore about him apparently he was quite the character one of the things that kind of you wanted to escape from if you lived in Tallahassee was getting out of school and then going to work in the mill now a big branch of my family were lint heads and it was you would think that mill work was not that bad well my great grandfather died at 40 from white lung disease. So, you know, it was it was hard labor and not healthy at all. So it was something you might want to escape from, and he did. What he did, what J.R. Godwin did, was to catch a freighter out of New Orleans. He went from Tallahassee down to New Orleans, and he started working on a freighter, and apparently he was the radio man on literally a slow boat to China. He apparently stayed in the Philippines for a little while, and then on his army service record, the presence of which is a story in itself, because in 1973, the military service records uh, warehouse of the National Archives burned, and only Alabama records survived from World War One and World War Two. A few other places did, but almost, but Alabama records were. Were the ones that survived the best. I wow. don't know why.
0: Yeah, that's a strange coincidence. Yes,
1: but it was an incredible fire. But his records are available, and I was able to uh, get them. Military DD-214 is the equivalent now. His army service record, if it's correct, recorded that he had spent seven years as a telephone lineman as well, and this served him well. All of these Tallahassee boys that Irene Pierce was corresponding with, her neighbors, her friends, her her brother, all were drafted in May of 1918. The, they didn't enlist, they were drafted. And in an odd stroke of luck, a bunch of them ended up in the same infantry division, the 81st, called the Wildcats. And that's where the title of the blog post comes from, The Girl the Wildcats Left Behind. They were the 81st um, Wildcat Division. Anyway, Godwin, instead of being an infantry rifleman, based on his line work and his radio work, became a member of the Signal Corps. So he was stringing telephone wires in trenches. That's dangerous work because we're not talking about six- and eight-foot trenches here. We're talking about knee-deep trenches, and you're running trying to, to uh, lay out this wire before somebody makes you into very small pieces
0: right this was of course the trench war yes the trench wars, so.
1: yeah oh yeah trench warfare and it's ugly he was in the 306 signal battalion of the 81st they trained in sandier which was in northern france and then they were shipped to the verdun sector in november of 1918 so he wasn't in actual combat for for more than a few days but his unit suffered all but two of its 900 casualties in the last two days of the war. So I think they had 973 total casualties, 971 happened on two days in, in, his, in, in the 81st Division, which was, you know, 25 to 30,000 men, but still that's a pretty good chunk. Of um, casualties, Absolutely. and that's that's um, uh, killed, missing, and wounded. Of course, and much more, many more wounded than than killed or missing. He, however, was neither killed nor missing, nor wounded. And at the end of the war, on literally on November 11th, within a week after the the armistice went into effect, the lines pulled back, and he went to North Central France, where he awaited transport. And it took a long time.
0: I noticed the the, the difference in months where uh, it, he's there waiting a long. It's not like today where you can get transported pretty quickly. This is a different era.
1: One of the one of the reasons you get transported fairly quickly now from a war zone to back home is because of how long it took in World War One to get these guys home. The armistice goes into effect on November eleventh, nineteen eighteen. By December, it's pretty obvious that the armistice is going to hold. The troops have already been pulled back. Uh, The Americans in particular were pulled back, and the Germans pulled back even further, well out of northern France. But it took until June, late June, for his unit to be repatriated, to come home. So they were in camp, and of course he caught the flu. This is the Spanish flu, not, you know, Not, I feel bad for a few days, it must be the flu. He caught the Spanish flu. It's called the Spanish flu, but it's really an American flu. The reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain did not censor the news. Like France and the U.S. and England and and possibly Germany and Italy did. Spain did not. And so it reported on all of these flu cases. And this killed millions of people around the world. What they now think happened is that American soldiers developed the flu. They brought it back to the United States, and it went with replacement troops back to Europe. That's why it spread to the U.S., and that's why it became virulent, and that's why there were two waves of it. In the fall of 1918 the fall of 1919, there were these two waves of this massive pandemic flu that, because of COVID, we talk about now. We talk about the Spanish flu.
0: And it all originated in the midst of these transports.
1: Right. Wow. Right. And, and particularly these guys who were waiting to, to be repatriated. We were not the only people that had trouble getting our soldiers home. Even if you only had to walk, it took a long time for you to get back home. He was finally repatriated in late June of 1919. And by 1921... Godwin and Irene Pierce were married. She left the mill after the birth of the first of her, I want to say she had seven children. Seven children. Yeah. She left the mill after the birth of her first one, and he did not escape the mill. He went to work in the mill, and he spent his entire post-World War I career in the mill until he retired.
0: I guess once you've been on the front lines, the mill's not quite as intimidating as it was to him when he was a young boy
1: well i i wonder if it was intimidating or just so boring and he was expected to do it he he's a young man looking for some adventure and and he wrote in his letters about being bored waiting to come home the letters that he sends you can read into them about how slow the mail was he received a bunch of letters all at once from Irene that had been written over the course of four months. Finally, he gets them all, all at once. And this was pretty typical, in, particularly in World War I. Delivering the mail was nearly impossible. But I suspect what you're driving at was he was prone to boredom. <laughs> and I suspect that that was true. He lived into the 1950s. She lived into the early 1970s.
0: That's why, like, it's crazy because we were talking about earlier, feeling bad for Mr. Shrum, but it obviously it was meant to be for these two. They uh, they they had a, a long life together. This collection you mentioned is not the not one of the larger collections at the archives, but it's such an important one because we were talking before we went on the air about. It feels like World War One kind of gets a little bit forgotten to mm-hmm. time and history compared to World War II, the Civil War, some of the other huge. Uh, landmark wars in our in our country's history. Is that a fact or is that just a, a, a perception about World War
1: I? I think it's a fact. There's actually a fair amount of scholarship on, on World War I, but nothing like there is about World War II and absolutely nothing like there is about the Civil War. World War I was almost an accident for the United States. It was a war of choice, we felt backed into a corner politically. It, there was a lot of pressure politically to enter World War I, but at the same time, we were completely unprepared. We were only, the U.S. was only in World War I for, for 19 months. We mobilized pretty amazingly, but at the same time, we didn't send millions of people overseas. We sent hundreds of thousands of people overseas we sent a lot of war material overseas. We probably would not have been as effective if we had entered the war earlier because the sides had bled each other badly. And we were there at exactly the right time to stop German advances and to help France in particular push the German war machine, which was still pretty formidable, back quite a bit. I think that World War 1 didn't have as much of an impact on the trajectory of the United States as the Civil War did or as World War II did. And then the Civil War is just kind of way outside of of anything you would consider normal for a war with the US because 700,000 Americans died killing each other, which was Tremendous loss compared to every other war that we've been in. We, we talk, for example, about the Vietnam War. Our component of the Vietnam War lasted almost 10 years, and 50,000-plus soldiers were killed, but compared to a, a three-and-a-half-year war where 700,000 were killed, and it's a break in American history. Things changed they did that after World War II, too, things changed. The modern American nation was built after World War II. So what is World War I? World War I is the culmination of the progressive mindset, the progressive era mindset of organizing and using the power of the state to to achieve a goal. And that goal was to, to mobilize militarily. But then there was this enormous pandemic that happened right at the tail end of it. So you've got this, you've got 20 years of the progressive era, which is exhausting. And then you've got a year and a half of war, which is exhausting. And then you have two years of pandemic on top of two years of a sharp, though short, depression. And then you have prohibition. So there were a lot of historically important things going on prior to World War II, prior to the Cold War. Americans wanted to demobilize quickly. In World War II, we went from 16 million people in the military to 190,000 in less than a year. We demobilized millions of people in a year, which is why we had trouble in Korea. We, we had over-demobilized for to fight a second war. Same way in World War One, People didn't want a big army. Americans didn't want a big army. That was a big fight after World War One. was how big was the army going to be. They wanted to demobilize. A lot of these guys wanted to forget about it. A lot of them had trouble, serious trouble, readjusting to civilian life. And so... Some of the
0: great novels uh, of all time were written about that very subject.
1: But let me bring up... Stephen Trout's work about those who were not. There were a lot of these guys that were really proud of their service. They were totally into it. The American Legion begins in 1919 and incorporates, you know, enrolls lots of these veterans. By 1932, the Veterans Bonus March had these guys marching on Washington, D.C. in their uniforms, camping out for months in Anacostia Flats trying to get some money from the federal government that they felt was owed. All
0: of that puts into context kind of why collections like this are so valuable because it gives an insight into the effect that this was having on everyday people, regular people like Irene Pierce. Yep. This directly affected her. Her brother went off, her, her, her neighbors. She met her husband. She met another <laughs> suitor or two along the way. So tell people real quick how they can maybe view some of this and some of the other great collections that you have at the Wiregrass Archives.
1: Let me start off with the the, the Pierce-Godwin collection, which we call the Godwin collection because we received it from the Godwin family. It's all available online. Every bit of it is available online. If you go to the Wiregrass Archives website on, and I believe that is uh, www.troy.edu www.troy.edu/stroke. Wiregrass Archives, then on that page is a link to the online finding aids. Click that, then click either G for Godwin in the, in the index or just scroll down to the Godwin collection, click that, and you'll see all of this material coming up with, that, with an explanation of, of what's going on here.
0: Outstanding. And of course, for those that for those that don't know, the Wiregrass Archives is located at the Troy Dothan campus, where you can find some physical records there as well. Recommend that you reach out ahead of time if you want to check it out. They're open throughout the week. Dr. Olaf is, is the man that you're looking for. So we've reached the end of this episode, but not the end of the Wiregrass Archives. There is still so much to discover and so many stories to be told on the podcast. You can find more information on your own at troy.edu slash Wiregrass Archives. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend. And we'd love it if you left a review in the App Store. It helps other people find the show. I'm Greg Phillips, joined as always by Dr. Marty Olaf, Director of the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama. This episode was recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio and was produced by Austin Toy with help from Kyle Gassett. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll be back again soon to tell you another story and you'll know it came from the archives.